Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. In England today, there exists nearly 120,000 miles of public footpath or rights of way. This might sound like a lot, but this is half of what it was 100 years ago. Put into its geographical context, it means that we, the public, have the right to be on just 8% of the land in the country. Of England's 42,000 miles of rivers, we have access to just 3%. Obviously, it wasn't always so. The enclosure of common land and the exclusion of the people who lived upon it was a violent process that began almost a thousand years ago and reached its zenith in the 18th and 19th centuries. This accumulation by dispossession, as David Harvey has put it, was frequently met with rebellion, but nonetheless continues to shape the landscape around us today. The story of the loss of the commons and the emergence of private property is not just of historical interest. Today, a third of Britain is still owned by the aristocracy, and the rights of the landowner to do what they please with their land are paramount. Property remains inextricably linked to power. It's been a common experience for many of us during the pandemic that access to nature has taken on an urgent importance. And as with so many facets of the pandemic, people's differing access to green space during lockdown has been felt along class lines. Well, I'm joined today by Nick Hayes, the author of The Book of Trespass, Crossing the Lines That Divide Us, to talk about the history of the commons and enclosure. We'll also be delving into the power of trespassing as a form of direct action and the goals of the Right to Roam campaign. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy the show. So yeah, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to sit down and talk to you about The Book of Trespass, Crossing the Lines That Divide Us. It's a really wonderful book. People should know it came out from Bloomsbury in 2020. I think that's right. And yeah, we're also hopefully going to talk a bit about Right to Rome, which is this campaign you've co-founded. So uh, to begin with, I suppose, a fairly trivial anecdote. Um yeah, I was visiting my hometown uh, of Dorchester in Dorset last summer with my partner and her sister. We went out for a you know walk in the country, and there's these kind of water meadows next to the river that lead you out of town. And when I was growing up, and certainly you know up until very recently, you could sort of walk anywhere in these fields, deviate from the path which sort of hugs the riverbank. But at some point, the landowner decided that they were going to put this wire fence up, uh, just like about a meter in from the bank of the river. And so, you know, in the height of summer, when all the nettles and the reeds and the brambles are all, you know, grown pretty wild, you know, shoulder height for some people. And this path is now completely impassable. And it took us about 20 minutes just to walk the 100 metres along this little stretch of water meadow. And it was kind of ridiculous. And it seemed to stem entirely from this pointless little act of enclosure. Um, It was a very sort of minor inconvenience, very trivial injustice. But it did definitely spur me into picking up your book when I saw it on the table uh, in my local bookshop. Um, And I'm really glad I did because it sheds this sort of much wider light on how significant questions around land ownership and access to land have been historically and and continue to be today, I suppose. So um, what, yeah, what made you decide to write this book? Uh, Where did the idea come from initially? Yeah. Oh, well, thanks so much for having us on uh, the podcast. I really appreciate it. And um, Obviously, because of the campaign, it's really nice uh, to get exposure. It's it's good for the book, but really, Book of Trespass was just the first step, kind of like a culture bomb. We could, uh, you know, it was an excuse to raise the conversation. And uh, I've got another book coming out at the end of April, uh, which is basically asking people to mm-hmm. kind of transfer the knowledge that they've gained from the Book of Trespass. And also Guy Shrubsoll's book, Who Owns England, because he was the co-founder of the campaign. Mm-hmm. And the next book... 
we'll be just basically showing people how to trespass as a direct action for change. So it's really cool to uh, to have some spotlight and, uh, and and try and get this campaign sorted, basically, because I think it is something we can achieve. Mm. But I guess it all started for me as a kid growing up in West Berkshire. And uh, I make my living as an illustrator at the moment. But way before that was even an opportunity, I was just, you know, rambling the countryside looking for stuff to draw. And once you've drawn the right of way that cuts through the woods next to my house, three or four times you've pretty much drawn that right of way and I started to realize there's so much else that I could be drawing if I only kind of overstepped the barbed wire and you know was able to have a little explore sometimes trees would come down great big galumping beech trees and stuff and the temptation to just go and sit there quietly for 40 minutes or an hour or whatever just because they're such incredible structures and it's just such a good thing to draw Basically, it just didn't seem like such a bad thing, especially sometimes the trees had come down over the barbed wire, so you weren't even climbing, you just were walking along this bridge made by a tree. And then bit by bit, uh, because I was doing it more and more, uh, I'd get caught by either kind of irate farmers or aggressive 20-year-olds on quad bikes and stuff. And it just seemed their response to me, the aggression, the kind of condescension, the kind of sardonic implication that I wasn't just breaking the law I was doing something morally obscene it just struck me as ridiculous because all I literally all I was doing was making crayon marks on a bit of paper I couldn't be less harmful to the environment that I was in uh, leaving no trace and dropping no litter and and yet when you look into it trespass literally defines your presence on land that you don't own as not just harmful towards the property, but property by law is seen as an extension of the personhood of the owner. So by law, what I was doing by sketching a fallen tree uh, was actively damaging the landowner. And that's just a crock of shit, basically. That's <laughs> like, you, you couldn't be further from the truth. So I began to be really interested in in what this lens was that sort of distorted the act itself into this sort of very bizarre and very distant interpretation of the act. And basically, the first thing you find out is that everyone in law considers it to be what's called a legal fiction, which is their term for a crock of shit. Like, it's basically something that the rest of the laws of property it's kind of like a polyfiller, a kind of uh, man-made polyfiller that fills up this massive crack in the logic of law. And all it really exists to do is to give greater value to the property on sale. And that value is proportionate to the exclusivity. Mm. And, you know, public access is seen as something, certainly along rivers, for example, fishermen will rent for, ex you know, pay money for exclusive access to rivers. Mm. And if there's a wild swimmer coming along, that just bursts their little bubble of exclusivity. And so, you know, so the law has been kind of buttressed to, to support this notion that you're doing something kind of morally wrong. Whereas I guess the conclusion of the Book of Trespass is that the real moral harm done by the barbed wire fence is against society. It's not by society. You know, when we need rivers and woodlands, science has proven repeatedly that we need them so badly for our mental health, our physical health, 
but also more abstract stuff like, uh, you know, access to open spaces improves kindness and empathy. Like, what a society we'd be if we had just had greater access to nature. Hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you've already touched on so much there, like even just kind of thinking about the the linguistics of a lot of this stuff, you know, English being full of value laden terms like roam, wander, deviate, which are all sort of associating the crossing of boundaries with this kind of moral, moral deviance or moral stigma, like you say, Uh, I thought that was really fascinating to just have it sort of laid out there. Um, so when when did this kind of concept of trespass emerge in Britain? And was there anything different about what that concept was then to that of today? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the big caesura, uh, the big moment of change was when William the Conqueror came over, mm. basically introduced this uh, concept of forests. And forest has got nothing to do with trees as we think of it now. But it came from the Latin forests, meaning outside of. And what these new enclosures were outside of was common law. And common law was basically this unwritten traditional set of rights and responsibilities that basically allowed the peasants or the working class people that lived on land, uh, as long as you kind of um, cared for the resource in question, whether it's kind of like water meadows or woodland, uh, as long as you made sure that it was kind of sustainable and that there was some kind of reciprocal relationship between the community and the land, then you had rights not just to access it, but there was a whole sort of litany of um, old-fashioned rights that arguably we don't need anymore. Estovers, you know, for uh, picking up uh, bits of wood uh, so that you could heat your home. Uh, That's not something that most people need anymore. You know, we've got radiators and stuff, but actually as a boater for the last almost two years, going into the woods and picking up wood in winter is kind of essential but along with all of these rights that were now peasants were excluded from over time you know we became sort of used to not having those rights and you know there were various spates of enclosure that followed the Tudor times was a big one the Georgian era certainly for rivers was a, a really big one it basically came down to this sense that once William the Conqueror had enclosed big areas of land. And he'd done it really just so that the deer he bred there wouldn't be startled by people as they went about their business. And why did he want loads of deer? Well, it was just so that, you know, it was for recreation. It was so that he could hunt them. But that very quickly turned into, then he started like palming them off to the kind of mercenary barons that had helped him, you know, that he basically owed to help him invade England. And then after the Magna Carta, uh, the rights of, uh, you know, the sort of lesser barons were enshrined in law and people started fencing off areas of land and saying this is no longer for common use. But what we've really found since publishing the book, it's it's kind of made me realise when we lost our right to access the land, what we also lost was our right to protect it. The commons was this kind of, like I said, a sort of reciprocal nature you know, if one of your villagers has decided to uh, cut down a whole stack of trees and then is selling firewood, you know, on the black market kind of thing, then the commoners would step in and uh, prevent that happening. Because if you cut down all the trees in your lifetime, then your grandchildren aren't going to have any trees to keep them warm. So there was this kind of collective policing of the environment, of the resource. 
And, you know, we've got to this sort of nature depleted state in England at the moment, simply because the locals have got no rights to protect the land, the nature and the habitats and the ecology that we were once so entwined with. That's all down to private exclusive land ownership. If, if, if I own a piece of land, I have, you know, one of the rights that comes with it. They're called perquisites. You know, these. if I own the land, then I own a whole load of rights that come with it. And one of the rights is the right to exclude. But one of the rights is called yusabatendai, which is the right to destroy. Like, I've, I literally own the right to exploit nature and to destroy it. And that's where the depletion of the natural world has come from, because the locals, the commoners, the public, us that are banned from so much of England, also don't have the right to protect it. So there's nothing we can do. Mm. I mean, one one phrase that comes up a lot in the book is uh, the cult of exclusion. You're talking about excluding people from the land and, and the consequences of that. Could you say a bit more about how this cult of exclusion has developed in, in England specifically, really, um, over the centuries? Yeah. One of the things I realised with the book that I had to introduce new words, basically. The only, the only word that applies to uh, communities and nature in England at the moment is recreation. And I, I, there's nothing that boils my blood more than this concept of our connection to nature being watered down into this very kind of neoliberal leisure industry, this idea that uh, it's all for sort of grinning, perfectly teethed white middle class people in, you know, North Face anoraks kind of thing. <laughs> Where the hell has our deep spiritual connection with nature been watered down into this product, basically? Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that all boils down to rentier capitalism, the basics of what, what you do, you get a resource, you restrict everyone's access to it, and then you sell it to them, to those that can afford it. And that's basically what recreation means. So I wanted to create these kind of new words for what's really going on there. And this cult of exclusion is one of them, because really the closer you get to the logic of private property, the, the harder it is to give it any kind of moral or rational substance at all. It is this weird cult. And this weird cult has been given power because, you know, up until the mid-1800s, you weren't even allowed to be an MP. You weren't allowed to hold any decision-making sway over the country unless you owned a large proportion of it. You had to be a landowner of very significant acreage uh, to even qualify for getting into Parliament. So this whole kind of system that benefits the few and is noxious or harmful to the many has just become ingrained in our culture uh, because those in power have been able to push it. And throughout the eras, like, they've been able to reinforce it on penalty of death or transportation. And it's only now recently that, you know, <laughs> this sort of recent fad for human rights that, you know, the Conservatives are doing their best to turn their backs on at the moment has meant that, you know, when uh, me and some friends go trespassing, the cult of exclusion is no longer as strong because they can't threaten us with swords and guns and horses. They can try, they can allude to it. That's why they're so aggressive. But there's very little they can actually do. So, so there's no better time you know, what we've got on our side now, I went trespassing with a mate of mine who identifies as working class. 
Um, and he made a really good point. We were on actually the Minister for Access's land. And uh, I mentioned that the start of this cult of exclusion was William the Conqueror wanting to breed more deer so that he could have recreation for his friends. That's still the reason why we're banned from our woodlands. They're these weird little pheasant and grouse, well, in moorland grouse. They, they've become these weird, desperate, irrational nurseries for non-native birds, two-thirds of which either die in the cold or get run over, and the last third of which are just bred uh, to be exterminated by um, city bankers uh, with shotguns. And that's the sole reason we're not allowed in our woods and why we're banned from the moors in certain times. Uh, and not even considering the kind of cruelty of uh, blood sports like that. It's such a minor proportion of people that benefit from the use of land in that way. Whereas, you know, this idea of Japanese forest bathing, Shinrin-yoku, like where literally just walking in the woods for two hours can raise your immune system for 30 days. Like we actually didn't need a global pandemic for people to realise how important our immune system was. But now more than ever, it seems that maybe woodlands should be used to sustain a kind of public immune system rather than sustain really just quite a daft, crap pastime for a load of rich people that really don't need to be doing it. They're just doing it so that, you know, they can sip a bit of slow gin and and do some handshaking, you know, make some deals in a kind of old aristocratic old English kind of pantomime facade that these things are. But my friend, yeah, he was like, you know, I, I'm doing today trespassing this land, what my ancestors would have been hanged or transported for. And actually today we've got Twitter and social media and we're able to make these points on a much more powerful scale. So this is the reason why now more than ever, a thousand years of land rights protesting looks ready to succeed. Yeah, I mean, you touched on a few things. There. I mean, we had uh, one of our authors, a guy called Chris Thomas, on the show back in January. And his book's all about this kind of idea of a radical new expansive blueprint for health and social care. Mm. And I can't remember if he actually mentions it or not, but it feels like the access to land in terms of like what you were saying about forests uh, falls very neatly into the stuff in his book as this kind of non-treatment component to a new vision for like a holistic approach to public health. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Well, actually, when the NHS was first being conceived after the Second World War, it was actually seen as, uh, or, or the way that the NHS would work financially was with a sister kind of concept of the right to roam. They kind of saw the NHS as this emergency intervention, free at the point of care, this sort of new radical vision to protect the nation from disease and ill health. But actually, they saw it as being the kind of safety net. But before that, you wanted to keep the nation healthy. And the right to Rome was presented as the answer to, you know, how do we sustain people's health? And, you know, no shit. It did well until it got to the House of Lords and still in the late 40s, the House of Lords were just all hereditary landowners. And so once again, you get this very, very elite, uh, small set of incredibly rich, intensely white and intensely upper class landowners just blocking public health. Hmm. So we need to stop seeing 
access to nature as a recreational thing that we do on weekends if we want to, and actually is a vital resource, not just for the public health, but for the amount of money that it would save our treasury. There's recently, it's, it's been an absolute nightmare to FOI, because um, there was a, a memo that came from the Treasury just a few months ago that sparked what was called the Agnew Review. And Lord Agnew was looking into just how much money the Treasury were pouring out of a hole in the bucket, basically, dealing with the repercussions of our nation's sedentary lifestyle. Now, that's everything from chronic pulmonary heart disease to obesity to mental health issues. And what's crucial... Like they tell us, you know, they tell us, well, you've got almost 120,000 miles of footpath. Mm. And I don't know where it came from that walking was the only way that we should appreciate nature. Uh, But you certainly don't get the mental health benefits of cold water swimming by walking by a river. You need to get in it. And, you know, why there is people need the right to be able to do what they genuinely enjoy. And you get these things called green prescriptions now, which George Eustace is um, just trialing. They, they've been going for about 20 years in New Zealand where, you know, doctors actually diagnose your sort of mental health issue or your physical ill health. And they prescribe you time in nature and they're trialing it at the moment. But the big elephant in the room is currently we only have rights to access 8% of English land. And the figure is even more absurd when it comes to rivers. Uh, we're only allowed access to 3% of them. The amount of reservoirs that are blocked off because they're private land, uh, especially up in the north, when there's so many cold water swimming groups that are you know, just gagging to be allowed to do what they love. But there's still this sort of anachronistic, ancient rule that just basically a very few elite, very rich people are clinging on to, but those people, as per fucking always, are the ones that are pulling the strings uh, in the back door of government. The truth is, though, that if people want to swim on a grand enough level, then people will just swim. And there's no greater example of people power than when, you know, new fences are put up on a popular swimming spot. Or like Grandchester Meadows, what happened in um, Cambridge, all of a sudden, for lockdown, uh, we're blocking off Grandchester Meadows because of uh, a variety of non-reasons, but mainly which centred around the wrong type of person now coming to Grandchester Meadows. You know, there's a lot more working class, a lot more diverse kind of people uh, experiencing nature over lockdown. And of course, because this spot had been used definitely on record for like 500 years, and obviously way before that, because it was just a beautiful spot and easy access to the river, people just point blank refused it. They said no. But the thing is, that was a new enclosure. We've actually been born into such a heavily militarised countryside that we've kind of forgotten what we've lost. You know, we don't see the absurdity of how little access to nature we have. But if you went to Finland or Iceland or Sweden or Norway or Uh, Scotland and you started putting up barbed wire fences around the lakes and the rivers and blocking off access to woods with razor wire there'd be a national outcry because they already have the right to roam yeah it's interesting because I don't know if this is a a spoiler or not but you know at the end of your book you reveal how all the various trespasses that you engage in throughout it 
whilst considered criminal in England, wouldn't have been if they'd taken place in Scotland. Um, yeah, what are some of the different approaches that the Scottish legal uh, system takes in terms of like giving people land access uh, and the right to roam? Well, I mean, what's so great about it is it's actually pretty bog standard. There's no complex legality. It's, it's just basically asking you not to be a dick. It's one of those common sense kind of things. You're allowed to light a fire, but don't light a fire in the middle of uh, summer in woodland on a load of uh, tinder. And the same with the Norwegian right to roam. Like, uh, like if you're going to um, take a shit, bury it. You know, leave your disposable barbecue at home. You don't need it. You're allowed to make a fire, leave no trace. All of these things are pretty bog standard. It's basically asking people to treat the natural world as if it was their own home. You know, tidy up after yourself. Be aware that other people and their appreciation of, say, a lake is going to be diminished if you leave all of your crap there. It asks you to be communitarian. It asks you to consider yourself as an individual in a wider thread and network of community. And what's so gorgeous about it is that it really dissolves this line between community or public or people and nature, like the non-human and the human are a community, are one kind of ecology. And at the moment, the state in England is like that nature really is this sort of two-dimensional postcard that we might be allowed to look at from a right of way, but we're not allowed any kind of visceral interaction with. Uh, you're not allowed to go, you know, into the river and what Roger Deacon would call the frog's eye view of the world. You're just not allowed to immerse yourself and kind of understand how things smell and what they feel like. And uh, and, and and one of the reasons is for that, the public are just, uh, you know, this old lords and ladies aristocracy kind of, notion that the the common public are just oiks and vandals but actually if you look at our countryside code it's got to be the weakest streak of piss even the way it's produced it's just a kind of some illustrator's done it on photoshop it's like six bullet points that you can download as a pdf which no one downloads as a pdf it's basically about gates and dogs which are both fair enough but if you go to the scottish outdoor access code it's this kind of information machine for the 21st century. It's bright, it's colourful, it's full of photographs, it's it's very easy, you know, kind of intuitive to use kind of thing. And what's crucial about all of that, by learning your responsibilities to nature, you actually end up learning more about nature as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're talking about exclusion and everything and the wrong people as perceived by you know landowners or whoever suddenly wanting to access land and there was another bit of the book which resonated with me I'll just quote from from it a little bit you know the, uh, the walls of England's private estates erected by our richest and most established families possess a grandeur and authority that has somehow overridden the violence and theft the malevolence they enacted to build them the wall presents itself as a blank statement of authority and we obey it because we see it without its context mm. um, and there's like no wall I guess that better encapsulates that sentiment than the one around the Drax estate in Dorset oh yeah this is local to you isn't it yeah it's local and well, you know, Drax has been in the news recently, but maybe could you tell our listeners a little bit more about the significance of this wall and I guess the means through which the Drax family acquired their wealth and staked their sort of right to, to this land? Absolutely. I mean, I could have written a book just on the poetics of this wall 
itself because uh, it actually uncovers quite a, a nuanced history of racism in England. And actually, the, the conclusion is is pretty much quite a positive one. I feel like a greater knowledge of Richard Drax's wall would go some way to curing the kind of divide between all lives matter and black lives matter. Because I really don't think they're as, as opposed as either side thinks they are. And the wall kind of demonstrates that. Basically, Richard Drax is the current MP for South Dorset. Uh, he's kind of a pantomime villain. You know, he's like sort of old aristocracy he's got absolutely no kind of you know there's photos of him in the dorset echo double parking across two disabled spaces like he's just a <laughs> bit of an all-round he's a bit like nicholas van hoogstraten who's another kind of pantomime villain of the book usually life is more nuanced than that but not with richard drax <laughs> <laughs> basically his ancestor uh and i would remember the name but there's literally too many surnames and hyphenated Surname. It's like seven, seven barreled name, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The guy is pretty polysyllabic. And um, basically, yeah, his family became known as almost like the Henry Ford of slavery. They kind of uh, standardized uh, the use of slaves. They wrote manuals for how best to deal with your slaves. Enslaved West African kidnapped people uh, were treated as cattle. They were treated as kind of uh, the chattel to the land ownership kind of thing. Basically, they were incredibly successful and very rich uh, landowners and slave owners uh, and sugar plantation managers in uh, the Caribbean. And then what happened, of course, you know, there was no compensation paid to the slaves when slavery was abolished in 1833. But there was uh, compensation paid to the owners of these slaves because the way it worked legally was the same way that, you know, the government buy land for HS2. You get paid a compensation. It's kind of an enforced sale. But because of that, you get paid kind of market rate for your property. And it was only through doing that that West African people were defined by English law as property. But we only stopped paying off the debt to these slave owners. This was paid off all by the English taxpayer. We only stopped finish paying off the interest of the loan in something like 2015 or 2016. Like it was an enormous amount of money that was paid out to these people. But the thing is, that money went straight into enclosing further land in England. You know, certainly the last century of slavery in England, it was starting to be seen as a grubby business, something not to be proud of. So what you did, you converted your money into an altogether more kind of a noble aesthetic, which is basically Palladian mansions, which stand to this day as monuments of slavery all across England, but are presented as monuments of English national pride. They're all in like Pride and Prejudice and like all of our costume dramas and stuff. But to this day, Richard Drax still owns one sugar plantation in Jamaica. But crucially, this wall is really symbolic of, uh, you know, uh, you only have to read like Tenehisi Coates or James Baldwin or Eric Williams. You, you only have to read those books to realise the kind of stark horror of slavery and racism, that slavery didn't come from racism. Racism was this thing that was born of just the capitalist need to exploit labour for a few rich people. 
And now we have this kind of monster, this kind of ideology that is ruining people's lives across the world, which is racism. And actually, what happened with all of this money, that wall that we're talking about was built to enclose common land that working class, mostly white, uh, but not always, English people would have used for, you know, like we said uh, at the start of this podcast, like, uh, you know, their winter fuel, their sustenance. So it was the white working class in England who actually built the wall, were paid to enclose themselves out of common land in Dorset. And there's something, therefore, about that wall that shows how the kind of white working class of England basically didn't benefit uh, and were actually harmed by the process of slavery. I'm not trying to say as much as the West Africans, but slavery and racism is and always has been an issue of class because, you know, you had very, very few white slave owners living on these estates with any number of indentured labourers from Ireland and also from Cromwell's new model army, like English and Irish people living with West Africans. And you had to find a way of making sure that their collective power was kind of uh, divided And the way they did that was by introducing skin colour as this kind of arbitrary notion of otherness kind of thing. And I guess to then sort of bring it back to today, you know, it feels like the wall around the Drax estate, knowing sort of where the money that built it came from, it feels like there's a double exclusion then at play. Obviously, the wall physically keeps people out. You know, but the fact that an estate like this was built with the profits of slavery and it continues to exist and, you know, the family continues to have plantations without any real sort of questioning of the legitimacy of that Mm. um, feels like another sort of act of exclusion. And I guess for, you know, many people of colour, people whose ancestors may have been enslaved, you know, in this country, it's sort of another a signal that, you know, the land and the countryside isn't yours and you're not really sort of welcome here. Because obviously one barrier to access is the fact that we're not allowed to access 90 plus percent of the land. But this feels like another sort of subliminal sort of barrier for many people. Absolutely. One of the key points of uh, this year's element of the campaign is that the right to roam is not about recreation. The right to roam is the right to belong, the right to really understand and gain knowledge and gain the benefits of the nature that thrives around us. And so, you know, for the 24th of April this year, which is this sort of 90-year anniversary celebration of uh, the Kinder Trespass, which basically won us access to the Derby Peaks, we're basically doing a People of Colour march. We've got two women of colour organising for us to kind of bring together Muslim hikers, uh, flock together a kind of uh, People of Colour birdwatching group, uh, Black Girls Hike, Black Men Walk for Health, the last few years have seen this kind of flourishing of safe space walking groups in the countryside for people of colour that just do not feel welcome. There's, of course, horrific instances of like overt racism when people of colour are in the countryside. But by and large, it's this kind of inherent racism of um, there's just so few people with non-white skin that are in the countryside, that people stop and stare and there's this general sense of like being out of place. So on the 24th of April, it's our intention, you know, by going up onto Kinder, we're not be trespassing any lines of property or climbing over any barbed wire, but we're going to be trespassing the invisible barrier 
of racism in the English countryside. Uh, and we're going to, like I say, we, because, you know, allies and accomplices are invited, but we'll be following a large collection of people of colour who will be going up onto Kinder Peak to kind of um, change the semiotics of it. Like, uh, why not look at nature as a place for healing the trauma of racism and healing the kind of epigenetic inherited trauma of slavery? So we're going to, you know, be loud and proud and, and basically make the point that a right to roam is an issue of social parity and not, again, one of recreation. Because just nature means so much more to us. And nationhood and this idea that we actually belong in this land, how can we feel that if we're fenced out of it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's something else I think you possibly say in the book, or maybe it's on the, the Right to Rome website, which is, you know, we all know that we're facing this kind of much bigger climate crisis, right? And and, the, and a loss of biodiversity across the planet. But, you know, that maybe our disconnection from nature at the moment sort of has an impact on our ability to comprehend and sort of adequately address these crises. Like, if you don't know what you've lost, how can you care for it and hope to protect it? Yeah. Exactly. There's a Robert Michael Pyle, he's a, a scientist, uh, one of his quotes in the next book that I've done that is, uh, you know, what is the extinction of the condor to a child that's never known the wren? How can you even care about or, or, or conceive the devastation of the climate if you don't have a personal relationship and feeling of loss to your local environment kind of thing? And looking into this, there's actually so many ways that public access could benefit nature. You know, we're talking like uh, citizen science, the monitoring of invasive species, uh, talking water pollution samples. Like, why can't the public be going out there and testing for microplastics and sewage in all of our rivers? Because as sure as shit, the Environment Agency aren't doing it because they've just been cut, 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 because nature doesn't mean shit to the government. But actually, if we need to plant twice the amount of trees that are in England at the moment, from 10% to 20% tree cover, why are we paying private finance initiatives to do this? Why aren't we asking people to go out and kind of get stuck into nature, you know? Yeah, my dad is a big... uh... He grows little oak saplings in our garden and then he goes and takes it into places he shouldn't be because he loves a trespass and uh, tries to plant them. He's got some hilarious stories of hiding behind a bush because, you know, the farm was coming over on his quad bike and he didn't want to be rumbled because he was planting his little sapling. (laughs) So, but I mean, the thing, I mean, you know, your dad's a badass. That's cool. (laughs) But um, there's also, you know, you do need expert guidance for planting trees because tree cover, uh, what that does, if example if they're oaks or beaches will almost universally annihilate the ground population the flora and fauna uh, that exists beneath it because the canopy block all the light so tree planting has become this kind of like a poster child of the kind of rewilding movement and there's you know you you do need experts to sort of direct and guide you but the people power Mm. why the hell are we paying people for it when Effectively, what we're saying is there's a real danger with this concept of rewilding because the way it's going at the moment, I mean, Boris Johnson just bought his dad two beavers. Uh, rewilding is this kind of like um, makeup just put on the old aristocratic land system. 
what we're really looking for is recommoning, mm. you know, reinstigating this old philosophy, this reciprocal, sustainable relationship between communities and nature. And actually, if you're allowing people to become involved on a much more visceral, emotional, deeper level with nature, then they're going to care about it more. And that's a long-term solution rather than just, uh, you know, saying, okay, well, the Nepa state, we've, we've turned this into a kind of Jurassic Park for storks or something. Mm. We own this land. You're not allowed on it. You're allowed on safari here for 25 quid a pop kind of thing. No, like the local people should be integrated into the rewilding of that space. Otherwise, we're still dealing with the same old hierarchy and the same old rentier capitalism. You know, you can have a look at a flower, but you've got to pay a ticket price to do so. Mm. This is not directly relevant to that, but um, interesting about sort of emphasising the need for the for the commons. One thing that goes throughout the book, and this is a little bit of a deviation, but you draw this interesting connection between a number of the famous kind of rebellions against enclosure or, or what you know whatever was going on at the time you know the swing riots uh, in the 1830s the the midland revolt in the early 17th century and kett's rebellion all of which sort of started in the immediate aftermath of like feast days or you know various little festivals on common land where people came together and you know partied drank talked planned to take action of various sorts mm. um which maybe i guess is part of the reason why landowners went to such pains to stamp out these gatherings on the the land that they just enclosed but yeah i suppose speaks again to the yeah the importance of the commons as a sort of democratic vehicle yeah well that chapter specifically about solstice and hippie and kind of rave culture kind of thing on our campaign, we're definitely not campaigning for uh, the right to rave. <laughs> but within the campaign, of course, we believe that people should be allowed to bring a sound system to Cheddar Gorge or something, as they bloody do anyway, uh, and not be arrested for it and not have the sound system impounded. Like, why is the only way that we're allowed to rave under the stars? Well, you have to pay 200 quid ticket to entry to these you know grand estates the place i chose in that chapter was the cornbury estate which is where what the press called posh dock you know uh, in oxfordshire and it's like where wilderness festival is the irony of that particular venue was that there was a very big free festival there in the mid 1800s but of course when the duke of marlborough that also owns blenheim palace when he was uh, granted the right to enclose that land the first thing he did was stop this sort of massive free festival that happened every year and because those free festivals they are just places of solidarity it's where you come together with people who aren't in your day-to-day -day environment and you realize that we maybe we're completely different but we still have stuff in common we all like a beer we all like a a, a giggle we all like a dance to a beat and that's what festivals really are. But of course, like everything else in the English countryside, it's just turned into leisure and recreation. It's just turned into something that you can sell people that are rich enough to afford it, which means that areas of land for festival are no longer places for communality. It's only a very certain type of demographic uh, that is able to afford it. And we need places to come together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing that I just wanted to bring up is, um, you know, the book in 
many ways, and I think this is acknowledged in the campaign as well, but it's a testament to the power of storytelling, you know, uh, the seeming naturalness of the way things are now, you know, the property relations that dominate, but also the power of these other narratives, alternative narratives, you know, stories of the commons, folk stories, stories of collectivism, disobedience. And you kind of talk about there being like a spell on the land, which is, you know, just another word for story, and that we need to break the spell uh, with a different kind of narrative. That was an interesting thing from the book that I wanted to mention. I mean, that I, I was going to call the book The Spellbound Land, mm. uh, but Bloomsbury decided against it. They decided that they'd done their Harry Potter thing <laughs> and that spells were a bit naff now. And I, I was a little uh, furious at that because I think the central point of the book is that we're all kind of bewitched by this spell. And that the antidote, like you say to these spells, are these old common stories that were created by no one. You know, essentially private property or exclusive ownership is a story that has been created by a few people and disseminated along a top-down authoritarian matrix. Mm. Uh, There are these other stories of people working together. There are other stories of uh, sharing and sedition and a refusal to capitulate to this kind of monoculture story of private property. There are a million other ways of dealing with our local nature kind of thing and interacting with it. And so, yeah, the book ends with the story of a local god, uh, Hearn, or a local kind of ghoul, uh, Hearn the Hunter, that is said to lead the wild chase before moments of great revolution. I'm wearing his necklace around my neck at the moment. Like I, I definitely, I'm, you know, do lally for her. <laughs> but we have to start telling our own story. And that's exactly what the campaign is doing. We're going out there telling the story of England being full of like amateur botanists, entomologists, like wild swimmers, paddleboarders, people that love nature like a religion. Uh, And actually, what is this one bland story of private property to tell us that all we're allowed to do is walk in a straight line uh, through nature? Why can't I sit and draw it? Why can't the botanist go and, you know, discover species that were previously unrecorded in that area? Why can't our own amateur enthusiasms propel us into nature to allow us to care more about it? Yeah, definitely. So let's finish up by talking a little bit about Right to Rome. I mean, you've already mentioned that 2022 has been designated the year of the trespass. You know, you're marking the 90th anniversary of the Kinder Trespass. So, yeah, could you say a little bit about the campaign and how people can get involved wherever they might be uh, in the country? Yeah, thank you. It's good, it's good to have, because, um, you know, really, the Book of Trespass was like the sort of arty literature kind of, you know, response to the history of it and da-da-da. But the next book, The Trespasser's Companion, is not trying to impress anyone with its uh, turn of phrase or anything. It's basically saying, bog standard, this is how we change it. Mm. Um, please don't just put this book next to the Book of Trespass on the shelf. Take it out with you and trespass. And it's basically saying... Trespass is a really, really good way to change things. It's a really good direct action. It's non-violent. It's peaceful. We're talking sketching, botany, picnics, music, you know, just go out into nature and trespass those areas that are local to you, really. First off, go with your mates, go with people with like minds that want to see a greater access to nature. And we've basically got a, a website called the trespasserscompanion.org 
mm. uh, that we're still building at the moment that is basically going to be a gallery kind of like a, you're going to be able to upload photos and the research and basically a bit of text to make your point to tell the story the new story of our relationship with the land we're basically saying if, if you go for a trespass I don't know you go for a swim on your own in a river or with your mates in a river that you're not allowed to be in that's improved your day and improved your mental health but it hasn't made it easier for people that have been so marginalized from nature that that consideration doesn't even come to them you know for queer people or people of color the notion of trespassing is realistically like more dangerous or more threatening to you know privileged people like myself kind of thing so the way to turn a trespass into a direct action, the way to turn your trespass not just into improving your day, but into improving the lives of others, is to publish it on our website. And we're going to make a real song and dance about this. We've got a load of larger trespasses that we're organising for this year, each with a really interesting story that kind of proves that the public need to be more connected to nature. But we're also asking for people to go out there and just have a nice walk or a nice swim, bring a sketchbook, bring a guitar, like whatever, enjoy your time in nature. But crucially, like we're talking about this new story, do it in accordance to the Scottish Outdoor Access Code. You know, the little stuff like um, don't just leave no trace, bring a bag and pick up litter. Hmm. It's especially necessary in rivers, you know, where decades worth of plastic kind of accumulates under the willow trees and stuff. Let's clean England. Let's actively start caring for it. There's a myriad of citizen science apps you can contribute to, uh, you know, the world's knowledge of bat populations, if only you were allowed on private land to do it. So we're just encouraging people to ignore. It's basically the, um, it's not David Harvey, uh, David Graeber. He basically says something along the lines of, you know, the essential element of direct action is to live as if you're free already. So we're asking people not to go storming onto the land with drums and megaphones, but simply to uh, exist upon the land as if the law of trespass was already abolished. You know, go there peacefully, go there joyfully, but crucially publish it so that we can actually work with that and use it as evidence when we finally take this to Parliament. Hmm. Brilliant. Well, I think that's a, a nice place to leave it. Yeah, thanks so much for, for coming on, Nick. It's been great to talk to you. No, likewise. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. That was Nick Hayes on Radicals and Conversation. You can find out more about the Right to Rome campaign by going to righttorome.org.uk. If you've enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to like it and or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, share the link online as well. We'll be back in April with another episode of Radicals and Conversation. So until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.